I turn now to our scripture lesson for this morning's sermon as we finish the book of the prophet Joel. We turn to Joel chapter 3. We'll read verses 18 through 21. And this is God's holy word as he gave to Joel to proclaim and here to proclaim blessings <coughs> promised upon his people. So let's read Joel chapter 3 verses 18 through 21 and attend to reverence or attend with reverence rather to its reading. For it is the very word of God. And it will come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drip with new wine, the hills shall flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Acacias. Egypt shall be a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, because of violence against the people of Judah, for they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall abide forever, and Jerusalem from generation to generation. For I will acquit them of the guilt of bloodshed, whom I had not acquitted. For the Lord dwells in Zion. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that even as we have read your word now, that it might enlighten our minds and hearts that we might be all the more conformed to the image of Christ as we apply the things that we learn here from it. So we pray that its reading, its proclamation, its exposition, its hearing will be acceptable in your sight, glorifying to you and edifying to your people in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the book of Joel, uh, we have seen God's chastisement coming upon his people in the form, to begin with, the plague of locusts. And he called his people to mourn over their current circumstances and to fast and worship. He threatened a further judgment by means of an invading foreign army, one that most likely did happen in history, but he also promised restoration if the people would repent. So all of this was a, a call ultimately for repentance. And then came the pivotal passage of the book in Joel 2, 28-32, wherein the Lord promised to pour out His Spirit on the descendants of the people of Judah and also on all flesh, He said. So people of all manner of national backgrounds, which of course we see that beginning to be fulfilled in the book of Acts. And the key promise of that passage, of course, is found in Joel 2, verse 32, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And as we looked more closely at that passage, particularly at that verse, in light of the rest of Scripture, we saw that to call on the name of the Lord really means particularly confessing the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. So to call upon the name of the Lord is to be saved. To have faith in Jesus Christ is to be saved. Those are two ways of saying the same thing. After that turning point in the text of the book here, we see that that God's judgment then comes not upon his repentant people. There was chastisement upon his people to get them to repent. But when his people repent, 
Ultimate judgment does not come upon them, but upon the nations who have persecuted them. And so then lastly today we read of blessings on God's people promised here at the end of the book of Joel. Blessings on all who call upon the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, everyone who has faith in Jesus Christ, can expect these blessings. The last time, even in the the midst of declarations of judgment on the wicked, we saw that uh, there would be a restoration and a preservation of God's people. So that's clearly a blessing we've already noted. And both the judgment and the restoration would be for God's glory. Today's passage begins by telling us about something that will come to pass at the same time as what we just read about last week, using the words, in that day. So that gives us a sense. It's the same time frame we're talking about here. We see blessings for God's people in that day, blessings for those who, as we saw in chapter 2, verse 32, call on the name of the Lord. There may be different ways to break these down, but I see particularly six blessings mentioned here. Number one, superabundant prosperity. Not necessarily material prosperity in the here and now. This is for the world to come, mainly. But we see superabundant prosperity is promised for God's people. Secondly, we'll see restored paradise. Third, vindication over persecutors. Fourth, permanent establishment. Number five, justification. And six, dwelling with the Lord. So as I mentioned, the the passage begins with these words, and it will come to pass in that day. So there's a time frame reference for us. At the same general time that God's judgment is poured out on the nations that we read about last time, as the nations of the earth receive judgment for God's glory and for the preservation of his people, it will be that these blessings will also be poured out on the covenant household. This is the destiny of everyone who is saved because she or he called on the name of the Lord. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, these are blessings promised to you. Number one, superabundant prosperity. In verse 18, And it will come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drip with new wine, the hills shall flow with milk. Now, uh, this is probably not literal in a simplistic sense. You're not going to Get your milk by taking a bucket out back and sticking it in a stream flowing down from the hills. Uh, Even in the the world to come, I don't think that we'll have conditions quite like that, but this is a way of, of talking about great prosperity. This is symbolic, poetic language that that reflects the kind of promises the Lord made to Israel in Moses' day, that they were going to receive a land flowing with milk and honey. For example, Leviticus 20, verse 24, but I have said, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, the Israelites didn't show up in the land of Canaan and find that the streams were flowing with milk and honey, literally, but the expression was a way of talking about great prosperity, a land that is abundant in its resources, 
I don't think even the most radically simplistic interpreters of Scripture think that the ancient land of Canaan literally had milk and honey flowing in its streams. Rather, that's a picture of a prosperous and plentiful land. A place that is full of superabundant prosperity for God's people. Likewise, we do not look forward either to a millennial golden age nor to that new world to come and think that the mountains will literally drip with wine and the hills flow with milk, but we understand that this is a way of saying God will provide for every need in superabundance. It's a picture of superabundant prosperity, and especially spiritual prosperity, not just material prosperity, though we'll have everything that we need, of course, in the world to come. There's a time and a place where not only are basic needs met, but every good and godly pleasure is abundantly available. We see in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7, John says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Notice, not that you inherit some things, but all things. That's superabundant prosperity. John Calvin writes that we need to be careful not to think in a very material earthly terms when we see this and see that the blessing is more something it's something that's far greater than any material blessing we could receive he says the prophet here declares talking of joel's passage here at the end of chapter three the prophet here declares that god will be so bountiful to his people that no good thing will be wanting to them either in abundance or variety and a little later he writes we now perceive the design of joel But we must remember that when the prophets so splendidly extol the blessings of God, they intend not to fill the minds of the godly with thoughts about eating and drinking. But profane men lay hold on such passages. We might step aside here and say, think of the the modern prosperity gospel. They'll focus on these things and look at a very material way of fulfilling this and think that it's promises for the here and now as well, which uh, twists and perverts what we're told in Scripture about what to expect in this life. As one well-known preacher pointed out, if you receive your best life now, there's only one place you can be going after this life. (laughs) That's that's not good. Calvin says, profane men lay hold on such passages as though the Lord intended to gratify their appetite. We know indeed that God's children differ much from swine, Hence God fills not the faithful with earthly things, for this would not be useful for their salvation. 
At the same time, he thus enlarges on his blessings, that we may know that no happiness shall in any way be wanting to us, when God shall be propitious to us. We hence see that our prophet, he's talking about Joel there, so speaks of God's earthly blessings that he fills not the minds of the godly with these things, but desires to raise them above, as though he said that the Israelites would in every way be happy after having in the first place been reconciled to God. If you're reconciled to God, you will ultimately in every way be happy. I think of the, the first question and answer in the shorter catechism. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. There's a, an enjoyment, there's a rejoicing there. This is something that is, is a real blessing that these, these pictures of prosperity give us an image of. God promises superabundant prosperity and not just merely material prosperity. Though again, in the world to come, you will want for nothing. Those promises are not for the here and now, but at the end of the age and thereafter, there will be only delight left to God's people. Number two, God promises the blessing of restored paradise to his people. That's a very closely related idea to the last one. The rest of verse 18. And all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. <clears throat> a fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Acacias. That uh, helps us get the geography here a little bit. That, that the, if we understand the geography of Old Testament Israel, that gives us an understanding of the picture that Joel is painting for us here. The acacia is a shrub, or a small tree. Uh, some varieties are evergreen, actually. So they were easy to spot in the wintertime because they were still green and other things weren't. Most acacias, especially the kinds, the varieties that were around the ancient land of Israel, were uh, thorny. Uh, if you look up a picture of an acacia online, you'll find that many of them have extremely long thorns. Some have speculated that that's what the crown of thorns that was placed on Christ was made of, is extremely long, very sharp thorns of the acacia. They grow in dry places. The Valley of Acacias that's referred to here, or in Hebrew, the Valley of Shittim, was north of the Dead Sea. According to Numbers 25 and Joshua 2 and 3, it was the final campsite of Israel before they entered the Promised Land. Here God pictures the watering of a dry place, of an extremely dry place. We find several other passages of Scripture that use similar, similar imagery. Uh, Ezekiel 47, verses 1 through 12, speaks here of, of a fountain and of watering. So we've got this fountain coming down and watering the valley of Acacias, going down toward the Dead Sea. And in Ezekiel, we see a very similar kind of image. Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12. Then he, that's the angel that was showing Ezekiel his vision, then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the front of the temple faced east. This is a temple that, that Ezekiel has seen constructed in his vision. 
The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gateway that faces east, and there was water running out on the right side. And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits, and he brought me through the waters. The water came up to my ankles. Again he measured 1,000 and brought me through the waters. The water came up to my knees. Again he measured 1,000 and brought me through the water. Through The water came up to my waist. Again he measured 1,000, and it was a river that I could not cross, for the water was too deep, water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. When I returned, there along the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and the other. Then he said to me, The water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley, and enters the sea. So the sea to the east there, of course, would be the Dead Sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. You know, the reason the Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea is because it has so much salt in it. It doesn't have an outlet, so, so especially as the water evaporates, it just leaves all the deposits of minerals that have come to it. And it's, it's so salty that there aren't any fish in it. There's no life in the sea, it's a dead sea. When it reaches the sea, when this river reaches the sea, we're told its waters are healed. And it shall be that every living thing that moves wherever the rivers go will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish because these waters go there, for they will be healed. And everything will live wherever the river goes. It shall be that fishermen will stand by by it from En Gedi to En Eglam, those are two places on the shore of the Dead Sea, they will be places for spreading their nets. Their fish will be of the same kind as the fish of the Great Sea, exceedingly many. The Great Sea means the Mediterranean. But then, we're told, but its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be given over to the salt, or they will be given over to salt, Along the bank of the river on this side and that will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither. Their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for the food. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. The fact that there are still waste places, hence to many that uh, this may not yet be quite the new heavens and new earth that's being spoken about there by Ezekiel, but maybe a millennial golden age when Eden-like conditions are uh, at least in part per, uh, per, or can't talk, partially restored. That, uh, that connects well with what we see in Joel 3.19 though, where there are desolate places still. But this imagery is clearly connected, even though uh, there may be something here for uh, of a connection to the world before Christ's return, but there clearly are connections here to the world to come as well. Zechariah 14, 8 and 9, And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, that's the Dead Sea, and half of them toward the western sea, the Mediterranean. In both summer and winter, it shall occur, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be, the Lord is one, and his name is one. So we have images 
that can be of a restored creation, partially so before the final judgment and fully so afterwards. And this is symbolic even of the present age when the gospel, empowered by the Holy Spirit, pours forth from every believer and the church collectively, which Zion is a picture of, to bring new life into the world. Psalm 46, 4. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. Isaiah 12, 3. Therefore, with joy you will draw waters from the wells of salvation. John 4, 13-14. Jesus says, But whoever drinks of the water I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become to him a fountain. There's a fountain here in Joel. There's a fountain where Jesus is talking about the believer. A fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And then in John 7, verses 37 through 39. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke, John says, concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So this can also be an image of the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer and the gospel going forth from the church and bringing new life. Joel is speaking not necessarily of a literal river, but of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit bringing purity to the church and new life to the world. But the language gives us clear connections to Eden-like conditions as well. In Genesis 2, 8-10, we read, The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil Now a river went out of Eden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2, continues giving a description of John's vision of of the world to come. It says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In In the middle of the street, And on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Paradise restored. The third thing we see here is that God promises vindication for his people over their persecutors. Verse 19, Egypt shall be a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, because of violence against the people of Judah, for they have shed innocent blood in their land. Egypt and Edom were supposed to be places of refuge for God's people. Abraham and Jacob found refuge in Egypt during times of famine. Edom was the closest related people 
to the Israelites. They were the descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob. And so Deuteronomy 23.7 reminds Israel that the Edomite is your brother. And yet Egypt and Edom have historically been among the worst of Israel's persecutors. And so God promises vindication for his people using Egypt and Edom as examples. And, and historically, already Edom has become a desolate wilderness. Matthew Henry writes, It is promised that the enemies of the church shall be vanquished and brought down. Revelation 6, 9 and 10, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Well, here Joel is saying God will do it. And of course, even they know it will happen. They're just wondering how long before it happens. In Revelation 21.8, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There is a vindication over persecutors. One of the greatest things, of course, is when we see persecutors of the church, like the Apostle Paul, become believers themselves. But God will not let mistreatment of his people go unaddressed. The fourth blessing we see is the blessing of permanent establishment. Verse 20, But Judah shall abide forever in Jerusalem from generation to generation. Jeremiah 17, 24 and 25, And it shall be, if you heed me carefully, says the Lord, to bring no burden through the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but hallow the Sabbath day to do no work in it, then shall enter the gates of this city kings and princes sitting on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their princes accompanied by the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And this city shall remain forever. And remember as we saw recently, the city in question is not merely earthly Jerusalem, but is actually an image for the whole church, as Paul teaches in Galatians 4. So God promises here a permanent establishment for his people. Fifth, God promises the blessing of justification. The first part of verse 21, For I will acquit them of the guilt of bloodshed whom I had not acquitted. People who he had previously chastised for their faithlessness will be forgiven. Acquitted. Their sins done away with. Why? Well, because they called on the name of the Lord. They called in faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever does so shall be saved. Justification, being counted righteous and acquitted of all wrongdoing, is promised here for God's people. And so then, finally, number six, God promises the blessing of his people's dwelling with him forever. The latter part of verse 21, For the Lord dwells in Zion. 
That is to say, the Lord dwells in the midst of his people. Psalm 23, 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Revelation 21, 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. These are the blessings that God promises. They're just some of the blessings. These are blessings, though, that God promises for his people. Superabundant prosperity, spiritual blessing beyond all measure, especially in the world to come. Restored paradise. Vindication over persecutors. Permanent establishment. Justification. Your sins totally wiped away and forgiven. And dwelling forever with the Lord himself. If you call on the name of the Lord, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, these promises belong to you. If you don't have faith in Jesus Christ, none of these promises belong to you. The only promise you have is is to be in the last category of people we saw last time, to to be punished by the Lord for your sins. To join in those who go to destruction we just read a few minutes ago to the lake of fire. So believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you do believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, trust these promises, for they are for you. Let's pray. Lord, grant us faith to call upon you truly, that we may know these blessings belong to us, for you have promised them to all who call upon your name. That is, to all who call upon the name of Jesus Christ in faith. Therefore, build up our faith in Him that we might be assured of salvation and of these blessings coming upon us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.